From the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne, this is The Yarn, a podcast produced on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'm Thomas Phillips. Our bodies are incomprehensibly complex systems made up of tens of trillions of cells. But what happens when those cells become combatants on microscopic battlefields? This week, we're taking both micro and macro perspectives on human health, with three stories about medical issues and the advocates trying to cure them. From what happens when cells swarm to whether medical collectives can improve your health. These stories were produced for the Science Gallery, and this is the fifth episode in our Swarm series. They were developed with mentors from all the best. First up, Jenny Tsai on how bodies respond to swarms of cancer cells. Cells are the basic units of life, and our body is made up of trillions of cells responsible for different functions. Normally, cells multiply in a regulated way, but sometimes they may become abnormal and start to multiply in an uncontrolled way. This is called cancer. Without treatment, the cancer cells may keep growing and swarming different territories of the body through bloodstream or the lymphatic system. How can one cope with the uncertainty and chaos that often comes with cancer? I'm talking to Jane Fletcher, a health psychologist who has worked with individuals living with cancer for over 15 years. Everyone has a different way of conceptualising what happens to them. But I think there's a common theme, and I think that common theme is about invasion. Many patients talk about the feeling like their body's betraying them by allowing um, malignancy to invade their body. And I guess that sort of sits with that idea of this swarm of of cancer cells. So I think it's a fairly common um, conceptualisation that people have. Tracy Sorensen is a writer and filmmaker from West Australia. Sorensen has a rare genetic condition known as the BRCA1 gene mutation, which is the mode functioning of a gene responsible for suppressing cell multiplication. Despite having her breast and her ovaries removed, she was still diagnosed with ovarian cancer. However, instead of an alien and invasive swarm, Sorensen holds a more adaptive perception of cancer as the proliferation and growth of her own cells. There was definitely a sense of expansion and growing um, happening because the um, tumours were actually pushing and pressing against my organs. I never saw it as a... As, as something alien to me or coming from outside of me. I did have an emotional reaction to the word swarm. It did feel a bit scary and, um, and it was almost like I did have to, for my own sort of sanity and sense of well-being, push back against that idea of swarm because it, it, it does feel so utterly uncontrollable. And rather than a sense of um, a swarm or, you know, like a aeroplanes dropping bombs or, you know, mosquitoes coming at you uncontrollably or some kind of hostile forces um, coming at you, I actually much more conceptualised it as just growth of my own tissue. Looking at cancer from another angle helped Sorensen to reduce the fear and powerlessness that often come with the idea of swarm. Similarly, Fletcher says creating an alternative and more adaptive imagination of swarm is a strategy that psychologists often employ. That idea of swarm is an interesting one for me because it's um, a very useful conceptualization because we can also then try as a psychologist to deconstruct that in a more adaptive way that might be something like, well, imagine in your immune system actually 
fighting the cancer. So talking about then the swarm of, of treatment that enters the body as the chemotherapy enters the body or the tablets that someone might take um, and swarms around the malignancy to, to destroy it. And the chemotherapy did shrink the tumors in Sorensen's body. She's now in remission and started writing a book to better conceptualize the relationship between cancer and her body. She took a very creative angle by writing from the perspective of each of her organs that are affected by the uncontrollable growth of cancer cells. The way I'm kind of writing about their unexpected and strange growth is that the organs mistake them for babies because the, um, the little tumors are saying we are baby organs. And that is scientifically sort of accurate because they are your own um, body and your own cells. These two little tumours are kind of doing all the things that or some of the things that um, organs did back in their own childhood. So they're, they're growing, they're getting bigger, they're um, trying to vasculate, get a blood supply. These two tumours start to become more and more demanding and want more and more attention and want more and more resources and they want to take up more and more space in the abdomen. And it, and it basically is the story of how the other organs are trying to cope with these expanding tumours that just don't know when to stop. For Sorensen, personifying her organs and tumour and giving each of them a personality brings a sense of agency and liveliness to her body. She told me, it is a beautiful yet fragile fantasy to think that we can have absolute control over our own body. Perhaps it is never about eliminating our triumphs over the swarm, but about how to live and persevere in the midst of it with courage and hope. That was Jenny Tsai. Next, Pema Monahan explains how a network of advocates are helping women receive diagnoses for a little understood chronic illness. A way to understand swarming is as collective action something done together, a movement. My friend Kirsty Miller runs Ache Magazine, a journal dedicated to writing about illness in the body by women and non-binary people. It's a magazine that was born out of Kirsty's experience of collective action networks around illness. Kirsty has endometriosis, a condition where cells like the ones that line the uterus grow elsewhere in the body. Endometriosis has no known cure and an extremely varied set of symptoms like very painful periods, fatigue and bowel issues. I'll let Kirsty describe how it felt to be in her body before she started having surgical procedures to alleviate the pain. I'd get really painful periods which I had started getting when I was about 11 and when I say painful I mean literally um, I would bleed heavily, I would fall, I would pass out, the pain would make me sort of collapse the floor, I'd be rolling around in agony, really just completely consuming pain. 10% of women of reproductive age worldwide have endometriosis. And yet in the UK where I live, 54% of the population have never even heard of the illness and it takes sufferers an average of eight years to receive a diagnosis. The first time Kirsty learned about endo was when she received her diagnosis in her early 20s. She felt let down by the information provided to her by her doctors. I was left feeling like, what is this thing? What do I have? There was no information, there's no support. I, just, I think I was given one pamphlet. The lack of information on endometriosis frustrated Kirsty. She needed more information and she found it on Facebook with endometriosis support groups. Um, so it was very much a, a sudden lifeline to all these resources, which 
allowed me to advocate for myself and then I think in turn advocate for others in these groups. Inspired Kirsty to start ache. This idea of a collective and all these patients coming together from a place of inclusivity and just just belief as a kind of common theme that everyone here is believed no one's being questioned and interrogated was the sort of starting point for me because I found that experience to be really for the lack of a better word it was just empowering and I, I felt not alone anymore. Eleanor Clayhorn is a historian of illness and the author of a new book called Unwell Women. Eleanor told me that illness collectors have historically created change through direct action like protests, creating and disseminating information and research and practicing healthcare that wasn't available. You know, as we've seen throughout history, when illness collectors create information, when they make change, it has led to huge changes. I mean, we've got in, in the UK, for example, you know, many of the um, 70s health activism sort of ideas, things like women's clinics, you know, these were things that were sort of pushed through by, in a way, by health feminists. However, there is another sort of swarm behaviour that occurs around endometriosis. An abiding belief by some medical practitioners in endomyths. One such belief is that having a baby will eradicate endometriosis from your body. There is no scientific evidence to back up this theory, but it's something that doctors are still telling patients today. Eleanor Clegghorn told me. I always think it's like the canonical example of how, not only how Western medicine has failed women but also in terms of how ideas about women's body and female organs have always been in, always had sort of social and economic kind of oppressive ideas sort of impressed upon them which of course is something that illness collectives would resist you know they would form in order to resist that kind of you know colonization of women and marginalized genders bodies by systems like, you know, capitalism and, you know, the sort of motherhood, you know, the kindly conservative reproductive paradigm. This morning I received my own diagnosis of endometriosis. A doctor called and told me I did in fact have an endometrioma in my left ovary. It hasn't gotten bigger since your previous ultrasound, she said, but you'll have to get it scanned every six months to check for growth. It can cause you pain and might indicate that you have problems getting pregnant. The first thing I did after that was send Kirsty a voice note. She'd been there for me over the last seven months after the first time I experienced a ruptured cyst and went to hospital. Kirsty had given me the information I needed and introduced me to other people who were trying to get diagnosed too. Before meeting Kirsty, I'd barely heard of endometriosis. The collective action of ache, their swarm behaviour in advocating for awareness and providing education around the illness, directly contributed to my diagnosis because without them I wouldn't have known to ask to be tested. For Kirsty, if she'd never found her swarm of endometriosis advocates, she might have kept the identity she was given by her doctors. Every doctor said, there's nothing wrong with you. Um, you know, you just, you're just unlucky. You're an unlucky girl who gets bad periods. That was Pema Monahan. In our final story, Mustafa Nuristani investigates how large gatherings of transcendental meditators can not only enhance mental health, but improve entire societies. According to health officials, around 200 in Gaza have been killed so far, including more than 60 children. It's the deadliest single-day attack since fighting broke out between Israel and Hamas nearly a week ago. Six-year-old Kinda tells her mother she's afraid she's going to die, that the house will be destroyed.
While the world was reeling over the devastation of war, more than 10,000 people came together to do this. Yes, people practiced meditation to create peace in the world. I'm Mustafa Nuristani, and I'm a certified teacher of Transcendental Meditation, which is the most effortless technique to experience inner peace. Being an Afghan refugee, I also escaped the war, and I'm all too familiar with the terrifying sound of rockets flying over our home in Kabul. But when I learned TM, all the painful memories of becoming a homeless refugee did not control my life anymore. TM gave me joy and resilience. So I made the decision to take part in this global group meditation to create harmony and happiness and to counter the atrocities of war in the world. The entire weekend was dedicated to meditation. People from all around the world connected to experience silence. I spoke with Leander Fleming, the lead organizer of this Global Meditation for Peace program, and I asked him his experience of the weekend. When people come together, you know, this, the feeling of togetherness and, and, and the meditating and transcending together is very, very strong. And what we heard from the participants, that just this virtual connection was already enough to create this really deep experience. And yeah, we heard from all around the world how blissful and how peaceful it was for the people. And what we are saying about meditation is that when you go beyond these finest levels of creation and you come to this area where everything becomes one and everything is unified. And when people, you know, meditate in their homes, they enlivening this unified value not just only in themselves, but in their surrounding. Today, there are more than 700 scientific research studies about transcendental meditation. This is interesting because TM comes from the most ancient system of knowledge known to mankind. So to get a deeper understanding of the relationship of this ancient science and modern science, I spoke with Dr. Richard Aldous, who has taught TM for the last 45 years. He began by speaking about the unified field and its connection with TM. The unified field is something that is actually everywhere. Uh, it's a, it can be likened to the sap in a plant. It's invisible, but it's there in the leaves, in the branches, in the roots. Everywhere is the sap. And so it is in life. This field is there in everything. Now, here's where it gets interesting. because. What we're having in Transcendental Meditation is the experience of going into the subtlest levels of our own awareness. So what we're doing by transcending is going into that unified field. We're touching base with the DNA of totality, with the DNA of creation, that field that has the code for everything within it. How can we explain that by going deep within our own self, we can create coherence in the world. What's happening there? So when you're meditating, you're creating an orderly field around yourself that actually influences other people. But the research has also found that actually groups of people meditating together create such waves of coherence or order in nature that it actually spreads to whole communities. The crime rate goes down, hospital admissions, 
um, go down, car accidents, domestic violence, all sorts of negative trends in society start to move towards the positive. So now you know why over 10,000 people connected to meditate for peace. I suggest you try it for yourself. After all, what have you got to lose? That was Mustafa Nuristani. Iyan is from the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. It's produced on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. A massive thank you to Jenny Sai, Pema Monahan, Mustafa Nuristani, the Science Gallery, and all the best. Our executive producer is Louisa Lim. See you next week.